Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Bruce, I'm really excited to talk with you again today to really continue on this conversation about what is infinite banking. And, you know, we kind of started this whole conversation because we recognize the need to go back to basics and really lay the foundation for the work that infinite banking does in someone's life and what it means and really help those that are already using infinite banking to really wrap their head around the fundamentals of why infinite banking works by understanding what it is. And also for the person who is exploring this concept of infinite banking, really digging into what it means for them. Sometimes it's really hard to get the facts and the bare bones, basic information to be able to grasp the concept. And so what our attempt is in these episodes in this series is really to go ahead and lay that foundation bare bones, here's the facts so that you have the information to make decisions. And so, Bruce, I'm really excited to continue this conversation. I'll kind of recap where we've been up to this point, but I'd love to just hear from you and your perspective as we stand here at part three of this series on what is infinite banking. Yeah, well, um, from from the real world of talking to so many people that go down the um, internet rabbit hole on infinite banking, um, I think what they really want or need is that they feel like they're trying to uh, disseminate between the marketing and true education. Mm, yeah. And, and they're trying to, because they, they feel like a lot of times that, you know, this is either too good to be true or why haven't heard, I heard this before or boy, it, it seems either too easy or too complicated. Mm-hmm. There's just a there's just a lot of questions, and they they seem to grasp on the fact that how we're trying to do this for people is to simply um, actually this is a comment that a couple of people have made to me when they reached out is they said you know you and Rachel are just trying to do this in a matter of fact way in a way that just says hey these are the pros and cons and this what makes it good and these are the things that you have to think about because. This is a strategy. I keep telling this to people all the time. This is not a product. So if you're trying to find like the perfect product, even the perfect design, because see what people don't realize is the design that you start with may not be the best design for you later on. And and I'll give you a quick example of that. I just had a conversation with somebody in Texas two days ago and they were adamant. I don't want any death benefit to be higher than what it possibly could be. Well, that person's 38 years old. I'm going to guarantee you in about 20 years when that person has an adjustment to his policy where he's going to, his term rider is going to drop off, he's going to say, I don't want that term rider to drop off because I've seen it over my career. Mm-hmm. People can't feel that. So the, the strategy actually changes along the way too. And that's why you're going to probably get multiple policies along the way. And people have a hard time of figuring that out 
or I shouldn't say figuring out. They have a hard time of feeling that mm-hmm. along the way. But then I, I'd like our listeners to think about this because this is a Dan Sullivan technique. Think, of, think 10 years back. Is, has your life changed both professionally, both with your relationships and financially over those last 10 years? Of course they have. And so really what you're looking for is a strategy that fits your life now with some flexibility to change in the future. So just don't overcomplicate how you're thinking about this. Bruce, I just appreciate your thoughts on that so much. And I want to point out two things. The person you are is not the same as who you were 10 years ago. And if you exactly. if you do recognize that your 10-year-ago version of yourself was a lot more immature, probably a lot more two-dimensional or you know, had a, a lot less facets of thinking about things from all different angles, probably a little more optimistic and less realistic and probably didn't see the need to look long-term as much as you do right now. And if those things are true, then what you need is to, as Bruce, you were just saying this, this idea of allowing for the flexibility in the future. The reason for that is because you as a human are going to be a different human in 10 years, much less in 30 or 40 years. And what you want is something that is going to do the best for you at that point when you have new realizations and when you have a new understanding and you have more facets and more dimensions to your knowledge of the world. And you're probably even more realistic at that point and more accepting of reality as opposed to being optimistic with just looking at the possibility. So that's just, it's so rich to recognize that you will change and your needs and your viewpoint will change, but do the best with the information you have right now. The other thing I really loved that you shared is that some people overcomplicate and some people oversimplify this concept. I think it can be true in anything. I mean, we really need to understand something deeply and and at the core of our being. We need to have thought through it logically and understand what it is that we're committing to if we're going to make a decision. But we also can't fact find and do the research and read a hundred books and continue the research process for the next 20 years before we make a decision, you're going to lose the time that you could have had this strategy working in your life. And so with all that being considered, as you evolve as a human, what you need is something that's going to support that evolution the best possible. And Nelson, Nelson used to say this all the time. Infinite banking is an exercise in imagination. And what he was talking about is just imagine how your life can change by taking the banking function into your control. And also imagine how many different ways that you could use this. And then finally, his imagination, imagine it being infinite. In other words, going to the next generation, not only your values and teaching of the strategy, but the death benefit. So you have to you have to actually do a, an imagination exercise so that you can see your future self. So so good. There's so much to talk about here. So let's I'm just going to give a quick recap of what we've covered up to this point and the reason is that we're building. We're putting building blocks together for you 
laying this foundation so that you can best understand infinite banking. I'd like you to think of this as understanding the bones of what infinite banking is so that you can see how it would help you with the goals and objectives that you have in your actual life. This is not an encyclopedia. This is not a college lecture. This is not something that um, you need to feel very scholastic about. But our goal is to give you information that improves your life and helps you get the clarity that you need. So again, we're not just trying to tell you everything as boring and dry as possible. We're also not trying to give you just the high level, big picture concept and just ask you to accept our truth. We're we're really working to help you understand how this applies to your life. So if you're starting from the question of what is infinite banking, we unpack that and you've got two episodes that we'll link back to, but it's a strategy of using specially designed whole life insurance, which then we said, okay, so what is whole life insurance? And we discovered the difference. And we talked about the difference between term life insurance and whole life insurance. The specific difference being term is for a length of time that it expires after 10 or 20 years, however long that term is, and it only pays out a death benefit. There's nothing that you can access during your lifetime. Whereas whole life insurance is a lifetime product that guarantees it will pay out a death benefit during your lifetime. And if you outlive the lifetime of the product of the policy at 121 years, it will fully pay out the death benefit to you while you're living. So if you defy all odds of um, human life expectancy at this time, you still will reap the rewards of the death benefit. You also get access to the cash value, which is the living benefit. So it's something that you have like equity growing inside the policy. So that brought us to what is the purpose of life insurance? And we talked about, well, it's ensuring your potential of losing income, or if you pass away, your family will no longer have the income stream that you would have made during your lifetime. And how do we replace that? We also then talked about why life insurance is not just a needs product. It's not about what you need. It's about what you want to create. And your want to create is as infinite as your imagination. So I, I'm going to go back to what you said earlier, Bruce, on that. Mm-hmm. We also talked about how many more options it provides to you, especially in the later years where somebody might say, I don't need life insurance. I'm 72 years old, but you still may want the benefits of life insurance. And those benefits can look like anything from passing on a legacy, to having more options for your own income needs in those later years to Um, just being able to have access to capital and a place to store cash. Then we dug in in the second episode to really understanding what is the special design of life insurance. And so we talked about how that's a dividend paying high cash value, whole life insurance with a mutual company that led us to talk about what is a mutual company and the difference between mutual and stock companies. We talked about what a dividend is. And then we also talked about what is base premium and what is paid up additions. I'm not going to under or I'm not going to recount all of those definitions. You can go back to those episodes for those. But today, Bruce, I think the ideal place to start would be that if we're talking about the special design of a policy being something that is a high cash value, dividend paying, whole life insurance with a mutual company, 
we really haven't yet talked about what is the high cash value component. We've mentioned cash value being a portion of the death benefit that you can access and use, but let's really dig into what is cash value? I mean, fundamentally, what is cash value? And as a result of that, what is the benefit of having cash value in my life? So Bruce, I'm just going to say the the one-liner here at the top, what is cash value? This is the equity portion of your life insurance policy, your whole life insurance policy that you can access and use. It is a part of your death benefit. It's not separate from your death benefit and you can access and use it during your lifetime. Bruce, let's unpack that and really talk about what is cash value. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Uh, the actuaries are looking at the cash value as the net present value of, of the future death benefit. And what that simply means is they're looking at, okay, how much of the uh, policies cash that is uh, currently accumulated in a variety of ways. One, how much premium was put in. Mm -hmm. Two, how much guaranteed interest, net interest. This was probably a good time to talk about this. So policies actually have guaranteed interest. As of January 1st of 2022, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, um, companies now guaranteed interest, it used to be 4%. Now products are, are have been slashed down to 2 to 3% are the ones that I know of. Now, there could be other ones that I, I don't know of, but you know we represent over a dozen companies. So uh, it's anywhere between 2 and 3%. So they slashed those. Uh, so that makes up uh, some of the growth of the cash value and that's compounded. So once, once that is applied, then it continues to earn interest on that. But the interest is net. And this is a concept that I think people need to understand is your cash value is not going to grow by 2% until after they take the, the cost of the insurance out. And there are some other administrative costs that come with this. So what they do is basically they're going to apply the 2%. And then they're going to take the charges out. Now, whole life is a little more frustrating than index universal life or variable universal life or, or old-fashioned universal life and term in that they do not actually break down the cost of insurance. You have to actually extrapolate that. There's nothing nefarious going on here. It's just that this product was designed for your whole life. So they've actually smoothed out all that cost of insurance over the whole time. So it really, it really doesn't have like one specific cost for that particular year that you're doing this. So once that cost of insurance comes out, then whatever net uh, in interest is actually applied to the guaranteed side. Then once a year, now this is very important that people understand this. Insurance companies declare a dividend once a year, and that dividend, unfortunately, does not have any um, kind of a, um, a standard throughout the throughout the industry that says this is this is what the dividend is. Some of it is 
a gross dividend. Some of it is a net dividend. What I, what I mean by that is gross of expenses. Sometimes I do it net of expenses. So it's really difficult. This is what happens all the time. And I understand why people are frustrated with this. They're going to say, well, this company gives a 6% dividend and this company gives a 2.4, excuse me, 5.4% dividend. So I'm going to go with this company. But what they don't know is the 6% is a gross dividend and the 5.4% is a net dividend. Hmm. And so really it's how they apply that dividend. And that goes into the cash value if you select that. Okay. Because there is an option where you can, there's, well, there's a couple of options. You can have them uh, set the dividend to actually be sent to you. You can set the dividend to accumulate. And when it accumulate, it accumulates in a, at the insurance company outside of the contract and earns interest. That interest now is taxable because it's not go, it doesn't go back to the cash value. And the way that we recommend doing it, and, and frankly, most people recommend doing this, is that you set the dividend um, to go back into the cash value to buy more paid up additions. And that way, that dividend is also compounding along the way. So now the cash value is building, and now you can actually borrow against the cash value. So you have collateral. Now, this is another important uh, thing to understand. Let's say you built up $100,000 of cash value, and then you borrow against that cash value, $50,000. What people have to know is, and this is, this is good, uh, and I'm only going to briefly touch on this because it does come up, but only every once in a while. People think that because they lower your death benefits, that you're actually, bar- you can borrow up to the amount of your death benefit, mm-hmm. which, is, which is leveraged up several times higher than your cash value. But you cannot borrow any more money than you have in your cash value. Yes. Because if you pay it, if you don't pay it back, they, they have your cash value as collateral. Your death benefit is lowered and your death benefit is also used as collateral if you die. So they lower your death benefit and, see, and people see that and they think, oh, well, they just lowered my death benefit by $50,000. So that means, look, I still have $750,000 that I could borrow against. Well, that's just not true. You can only borrow against the actual cash value. So and Bruce, then there's a few you, things I want to uh, unpack a little bit as, um, as you're moving. So hold the thought because I want to continue on this trajectory. Um, when you're mentioning lowering the death benefit, what specifically do you mean? Do you mean on account of this is a lower death benefit than if I had designed it as a traditional whole life policy? Or are you talking about reduced paying up? What, what do you mean by lowering the death benefit? No, I just simply mean is if, if at the time you have $100,000 of cash value, your death benefit is eight hundred thousand. You take you take a loan of five of fifty thousand. Initially, on that day, they will lower the death benefit to to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars from eight hundred thousand. So they're going to say, now we're going to lower the death benefit so that if you die, we're going to get paid back by instead of paying your beneficiaries eight hundred thousand, we're only going to pay them seven hundred fifty thousand because you already took. $50,000 of your future death benefit. Remember, the cash value is the net value of a future death benefit. Yes. So, okay. so they're going to take that from from that death benefit, a future death benefit. So this is the way I think about it. And correct me if this is a, a 
a mistake in understanding or if this is a good way to think about it. So I think about the death benefit still is $850,000 because the cash value is a part of your death benefit that you can use if you borrow against your cash value and you have an outstanding loan at the time of your death. They'll pay you out your full death benefit minus the outstanding loan. Correct. But they, they actually, for, uh, bookkeeping wise, they actually lower the death benefit right away. So you'll mm. see a lower death benefit. Excellent. It, okay. It's, it's no different than think about your house. If you have a house that's worth 800000 you have $100,000 worth of equity in it so that you could borrow against, like in a home equity line of credit. You take another $50,000 on your home equity line of credit. When you sell the house, you're going to have to pay off the yes. home equity line of credit and your, and your mortgage before you get this. This is the argument that all these people out there that say this is a scam because they, the insurance company keeps your cash value and they only pay you your death benefit. Well, yes, because the actuaries have only, have only figured the, the net costs of the, the insurance is the, is the difference between the cash value and the death benefit. They're only charging you for that much because that's the only thing that's at risk. I was having this conversation with a, with a client the other day. I said, if you want the million dollars death benefit and the $500,000 that you have a cash value, the actuaries can do that. They'll charge, but they're going to have to charge you for $1.5 million, the $1 million death benefit and the $500,000 of cash value. They can do that. There's no problem. But what they've chosen to do in the product design is to say you have a $1 million death benefit. We have $500,000 of your cash value. We're only going to charge you the difference between the $500,000 and the $1 million. So then at the time, we're only at risk at $500,000. So you, you don't have as much cost of insurance. So then we just keep the 500,000. We give you the $1 million. So it's, there, once again, I, I've already used this word. I think it's a great word. There's nothing nefarious going on here. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is an actuarial product. It's all figured in mathematically. So, so let's go back to another piece that you had shared that, here. And that was, you can't borrow against your death benefit. You borrow against your cash value. So this is the same, again, like a home. If you have a million-dollar home and you have $200,000 of equity inside that home and you go to get a home equity line of credit, they're not going to loan you up to the million dollars. They're going to loan you up to the $200,000 of equity that you have in the home. So very similarly, there is a common misunderstanding that when we say you can put money into infinite banking, you can buy, you can purchase a whole life insurance policy, you can begin that policy, there can be this misunderstanding that, well, if I fund $5,000 in this year, but my death benefit is 2 million, well, then I can borrow against the 2 million on the first day. No, that is not the case. You can borrow against the cash value, which is, again, I'm just going to reiterate, Bruce, you mentioned the cash value is a factor of three things. It's the factor of how much premium you've paid into the policy and also how much growth based on dividends and interest. So that is what you can borrow against, the cash value. The other piece that I wanted to mention with when you said net interest. So we're talking about, again, on a life insurance policy, if you've you've probably seen an illustration, but if you haven't, there's usually a column on the left. I don't know if my screen is mirroring or not. So I'm just going to show you my left, which is probably showing on your right column on the left. And this is your guaranteed 
cash value increase. That is based on guaranteed interest. What is interesting about that growth is that they do not show you 2% on your cash value and say, guaranteed 2%, guaranteed 2%, guaranteed 2%. What they do is they show you the net cash value dollar amount that you will have based on that guaranteed growth. And so Bruce, you're saying the 2% is applied and then the costs are removed out of that guaranteed portion. But what you can hang your hat on is knowing this dollar amount they list in the guaranteed column is the guaranteed amount of cash you will have on the basis of that guaranteed interest. Then we have to, we'll talk further about what the right side of the illustration is with your non guaranteed dividends. As soon as that non guaranteed but highly anticipated dividend is paid, that new amount gets put over onto your guaranteed portion of cash value. Your cash value never dips below that point in the future. And then what happens is all of your values on the guaranteed side now are going to adjust up to reflect that dividend that was just paid in a given year. And so every year, if you got an enforced illustration, meaning the illustration that demonstrates exactly how your policy has performed up to this point and is expected to continue performing in the future, at any point that you grab that enforced illustration and you compare, here's my enforced illustration, here's my illustration before I put the policy in place, you're always going to see guarantees on the guaranteed side of what has already happened, the history of your experience in the policy is going to be higher than what you showed on the on the illustration before you put the policy in place because dividends are going to have been applied each year, becoming part of your guarantees. Bruce, is there any better way that um, you would add to that piece to help that understanding? No, I think that's great. Okay. So I just wanted to have commented about that guaranteed cash value amount. Um, One thing also, I want to go back to net present value of future death benefit. I don't know why, but for me, that does not make a lot of sense. And I think uh, it's just maybe the way that I think. But if I think about here's the, there's a time value of money on everything. So if my future death benefit in just say for the sake of round numbers, my future death benefit in 50 years is $10 million. They're backing up what is that $10 million in 50 years worth today based on the fact that we know inflation is going to be applied to this money and it's going to grow to become $10 million in 50 years. Bruce, is there a better way of understanding what is net present value of future death benefit if maybe those words feel really um, hard to wrap your head around? Yeah, so the, on the guaranteed side, it's easy. It's it's very easy because they're they're just taking the the uh, guaranteed interest minus the the cost, and yes, they're getting to a at age one twenty one because that's when the contracts are over. And when I mean over, that means it's called endowed. They're going to endow. Endow simply means is is that they have matured, and we are going to pay it out. If you're still um, alive at 121, which is a key concept because this, this is what allows these guarantees to actually happen because this is the only guarantee that we, we basically can have because other products um, don't have these type of guarantees because they don't have an endpoint mm-hmm. for this. 
so that you're, for your example, the $10 million that, that this person is going to have at 121 at any part in uh, any point in their lives, whether it's at 38, 58, 78, that cash value represents the, the, the present value of 10 million after it applies all the interest, net interest for the next, whatever it is, from 38 to age 121, from 58 to 121, from 78 to 121. It's a simple mathematical problem. On the non-guaranteed side with a dividend, it's still a simple problem, okay? But now they are making assumptions that are never true. Now, I don't mean that they're, I don't mean that they're lying. I just mean that they're assuming today's dividend mm -hmm. and they're projecting that out for the rest of the contract. Now, in the past, dividends have never stayed the same for 121 years. So sometimes they're less, sometimes they're greater. They're actually, we believe they're going into a greater situation right now where, the, where any contracts that are going out now are actually underreporting mm -hmm. what they will probably produce in the future, at least for a short period of time, until the next recession comes and interest rates drop. So on that side, they're still doing the same mathematical formula, but they're taking today's dividend, either net or gross, and they're applying it to, so that it will grow to meet the $10 million death benefit. So if you know anything about math, it's exactly what you said. Whatever that present is, that present value is, they're applying that dividend to that plus the guaranteed interest so that it meets at $10 million into the future. So then the net present value would have to have some kind of a growth rate attached to it in order to re reach that value in the future. And we're saying that growth rate is made up of what you're going to earn in your dividends and your interest. Right. And that's probably going way into the weeds on this. But, probably is. But they, but that's once again, the only reason I bring it up is so that people understand that this is an actuarial product. It's not magic. It's not like some thing that they're just saying, well, this is too complicated. Now, I'm not smart enough actuarially to do the math on this, but you know, they set these up, the actuary set this up, and then the computer just does it for them. So it's, 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 to them, it's very easy. So Bruce, you are actually smart enough, but actuarially, we say that word all the time. So I'm just going to pull up an actual definition of actuary. An actuary is a person who compiles and analyzes statistics and uses them to calculate insurance risks and premiums. I just throw that out because in case you hear us saying the word actuarily, it is not a failure of pronunciation on our behalf. This is because at the insurance company, they are looking at the, the statistics of your life expectancy and the pool of life expectancy of all of the insureds based on population, health status, medical records, underwriting. There's so much that goes into these calculations of figuring out how to um, think about the cost of insuring an individual person and a pool of people and banding that risk into different underwriting classes. So. 
Bruce, I think it'd be valuable to talk about here with cash value. I mean, I know you were also probably continuing on another uh, trajectory if you wanted to continue that, but I, I think the the question would be, okay, so if I have a death benefit and I purchase this death benefit and it's a guaranteed death benefit that will pay out and I'm applying my dividends to buy more paid up additions, so buy more insurance, then my death benefit is actually increasing as well as my cash value is increasing. They'll meet each other at age 121. I call it a banana curve. This is a very oversimplified version, but if you have one curve, which is your death benefit, it starts here, say $100,000 and rises to be say 10, did I say 100,000? Say say it starts at a a million dollars and rises to 10 million over the life of the policy. You may have then another curve right underneath it that's going to be your cash value. Maybe that will start depending on what you're funding it as at, but say your initial death benefits a million and your initial cash value is in the first year, maybe you're putting in a hundred thousand of premium. Say it's around the ballpark of a hundred thousand of cash value. That cash value is going to rise as well and meet the death benefit so that the two are equal amounts at the age of endowment, age 121. I call it a banana curve because they, they meet like a banana, but there's two curves. There's the top curve and the bottom curve both rise to meet the same location. But if we say, all right, my my death benefit's growing, that's going to help me be able to leave an inheritance to my children. That's going to pay out whenever I pass away. It's a guaranteed dollar amount that's going to pay out. And that's going to take care of my family. That's going to be able to put everything that I was creating in my life into future generations so that I can continue to grow wealth in my children and that they can use this as a seed to continue to grow wealth. Now I have the cash value I can use and borrow against during my lifetime that's growing. How valuable is that cash value to me during my lifetime? And I think this might be a different angle than we've ever approached this conversation of cash value from before, but if I have this life insurance product, it provides me this pool of capital that now I can think of as my warehouse of wealth. I can think of this as my reserves, as my um, bunker, almost my financial bunker. I can think of this as my, uh, there's another word, my war chest, my, my pile of growing capital that I can access and use because it's guaranteed. And the value of that guarantee is that I know what it's going to be at a minimum. It might grow more than my expectation because my dividend could be higher than illustrated. That's going to be applied to the cash value. And as that continues to grow and I purchase more insurance and I have the growth inside the policy, now my cash value is expanding, but I always have a floor and I know my cash value is not going to drop below that floor. That's tremendously Uh, peace of mind bringing, if I can create a word. I mean, because now I have this ability to rely on that cash and know that it's not going to be this confusing, possible cash available, possibly not available. I might be able to access it. It might evaporate in the stock market. No, we don't have any of those confusions or uncertainties. Instead, we have this bedrock, this concrete beneath our feet that we can say, I know that I'm going to have this cash value and I can access it when I need it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, what's interesting is we, we get a lot of advertising and pressure 
um, in today's society. And this is, this is, you know, I've been in this industry for a long time. This is becoming more prevalent, I would say, in the last five years, and there's a reason for it. And, and that issue is you've got to get your money working for you, moving, velocity of money. I mean, we hear this, these terms all the time. So there's very little emphasis or importance put on just simple savings. And obviously, I think we all know the reason for that is because of our policies of the Federal Reserve have driven down interest so that it's nothing. People are like, why would I keep money in a bank? I need to get this money working for me, especially mm-hmm. now in 2021 and April 2000, excuse me, April 2022, <laughs> where, where the, um, they just declared that um, whatever inflation is, however they measure it, was, was over 7.5%. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, if I'm only getting 0.01 in my savings account, I'm going backwards. Mm-hmm. But there still is value of having money placed somewhere that's liquid for a variety of reasons. You've already touched on some of them, but I'd like to add a couple more. One is the confidence that it brings you that you can actually have money available for opportunities that arise. This is one thing. Another thing is for people, and and we cannot give advice on on this particular podcast, but you actually can smooth out sequence of return risk mm-hmm. in your in your retirement years. We won't go into that, but the, the cash value can actually be used. And if you and if you look up our our podcast with Dr. Wade Fowl, he explains this very, very well. The other thing that it does is it it allows you to make either purchases or gifts the access of that cash in a form of a loan, as we've always talked. But what people always forget is there's an emotional thing for this. I tell people all the time, it's good when you're sitting there in retirement and you're thinking, you know, my wife and I, we really like to go to this destination for vacation. And all you have is money in a tax deferred place or in a tax a tax uh, account a brokerage account where if you if you sell something out of there you have to pay taxes out of it that's mm-hmm. emotional for a lot of people but if they have money in a place like their cash value where they can call up your advisor or your your producer and say hey I'd like to access $10,000 to go here oh well we'll send you a loan against your cash value you don't have to pay any taxes now emotionally, you're you can actually do this, and you enjoy life better. And so, it's not just cash value isn't just something that you want to sit there and accumulate. You want to have a plan on how you use it, and you want to be a good steward of paying it back. Because we haven't even talked about this yet. When you pay back, this is one of the greatest things about cash value. Is when you pay, let's just say you make a thousand dollar loan payment back. Once that loan uh, repayment check is cleared, your cash value goes up by $1,000. So it goes up by the amount of the repayment. No other loan works like this that I know of. So you make the payment back. Some of it goes to interest right away. In In the companies that we use, 
they don't apply the interest until your anniversary date. Now it's accumulating, but they're not applying the interest to your till your your uh, anniversary date. I, I want to make sure I people understand that. I'm not saying that they're not applying interest, but along the way until your anniversary date, every payment goes goes right to your principal. So that if you need it again right away, you can borrow against it again. This is why business owners love this because it's just like having money liquid again. Uh, so those are all the things that I think people have to understand about cash value. Extremely valuable. I think the point is that if you happen to come to this conversation looking for the facts and the bare bones reality of what infinite banking is, you probably have this idea already that you want access to your cash, to your capital. You want money that's safe and that's not going anywhere. And you want to be able to use that for anything. Bruce, you mentioned vacations. Uh, we often see people use it in their business. We see people buy real estate with their cash value. And so when you're thinking of the world through this lens of opportunity and you have those good money habits and you're saving in a place that's doing as much as possible for you, now you have access to this cash and you can put it to work in an advantageous way. Um I like that you brought in just the idea of repaying the loan and then having that cash available to borrow right away as well, because that is tremendously valuable. You don't have to wait until the whole loan is fully repaid in order to use that cash again. And so what that just means is it's similar to a, um, a home equity line of credit or a, a line of credit where if you pay it down, you have access to use that again. Just meaning that the more consistent you are with repaying loans, the more you free the capital up to be able to be used for something else. Yeah, the only way it's only way it's different from a home equity line of credit is they're applying interest every either every day or once a month. So that a thousand dollar payment, uh, yes, goes back and most of it, but whatever interest that they would they would also apply either on a daily basis or on a yearly basis work. Life insurance companies we use, they only apply it at the end so that you know you have that whole year to actually access your principal payment back. So, so Bruce, there's so many places we could go from here, but looking at the time, let's dig into that piece just for a second. It might be a little bit in the weeds, but let's just say I have $100,000 of cash value and I take a policy loan for $80,000 and I'm expecting say I'm using this for um, purchasing a, say a fourplex, and I'm using some capital to remodel and put some value add into this property. And then I'm expecting to have a stream of income from rental income that I'm going to use to repay the loan over time. But let's just say my expectation is that I'm going to pay it back over 30 years. And instead... I decide to flip the property and I have an infusion of cash and say this was much faster than expected. And nine months later, I flipped the property. Now I have this bucket of cash I want to put back into the policy and I'm repaying my loan. So I'm repaying this full $80,000 loan. It's only been nine months. How is the insurance company looking at that interest? Are they going to charge me any interest at all? Are they going to charge me nine months worth of interest? Yeah, Can you speak to that? Yes. They'll, they'll, however long you have it out, when you let's use nine month nine months, they will charge you for that nine months. 
But as soon as you make the payment back, then the interest stops accruing. And then they'll apply the interest on your anniversary date. So let's just pretend on your anniversary date, you take out the loan. So it starts to accrue every day. But they don't, but then you, after nine months, you flip the property, you pay the loan off, it stops accruing. But then in three more months on your anniversary date, for, the, for that time period of nine months, they will apply the interest on your anniversary date. It's, it's a bookkeeping thing. So they're going to apply your dividend and they're going to subtract the interest. Uh, okay. So it's not necessarily that if that loan was large and the interest amount, say it was $1,000. I mean, I'm just making up a dollar amount of interest. They're not going to make a new loan for that amount necessarily. Correct? A new loan for the... The amount of interest that interest, you now... No, no, okay. you know, they will not. However, if you do not pay the interest back in a one-year time period, this is very important for people to understand, it then will, will still be there for the next year and it will accumulate interest on the interest. So it also does compound. But the way that the policy is designed, as long as you or continue to pay the premium, the premium and all the other interests and dividends are compounding. So they, they should stay ahead as long as you're continuing to pay a premium and you're not taking too many loans and then just never paying them back. Um, as long as you keep making those premium payments and that is compounding, 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 then the interest should not outrace the, um, the compounding you're getting on the premium side. So I think I've just never approached the question or the conversation from that angle before of, hey, I've paid off the loan. Now what happens with that interest? Normally, if you had that outstanding loan at $80,000 and you're continuing that on into year two, and now maybe you've had, I don't know, $2,500 or so of income from the property, you're going to pay down the loan incrementally. Uh, then maybe you start making monthly payments back to the loan uh, on the life insurance policy. And over time, you're slowly paying that off. They're going to take the amount of interest that you were owing. They're going to add that to the balance of the loan. And every time that you have not fully paid off the loan, they're going to add the proper portion of interest based on the outstanding loan and apply that to the balance of the loan going forward, correct? Correct. So it's the only way this is really different is, is that um, um, the compounding of the interest doesn't occur until the anniversary date. So it is accruing, but if you pay it all off, then it doesn't, it's not there for the next year. So it's, it's um, the, reason, the reason that this works like this is, think about this, when you're making a, uh, a payment to a normal loan, only portion of it is going to principal and a portion of it's going to interest. When you're making a life insurance repayment, all of it is going to principal until your anniversary date. And then whatever's um, hasn't been uh, paid off and your interest over that time period before you paid it off, then comes up on your statement to say, okay, this was the interest that you accrued over the 12 months. And they, and they just subtract it from your cash value. But you've also accrued interest and dividends along the way. In and in most and in most cases, the net 
application to your cash value on your anniversary date is positive. Mm -hmm. So all of this then goes to benefit you because you have this cash value that you can rely on, that you can access through a policy loan. We'll, we'll talk further about policy loans and what that means in a future episode on this conversation in this series. But the idea that I have this capital, I can borrow against, I can not reset the growth of dividends and interest on my cash value, but I can use it as collateral for a policy loan that ties up my capital, making it collateral for the life insurance company, but doesn't deplete it. Then I have this ability to replenish and repay that loan, which then frees up my cash value to be able to be used again. It's very liberating to know that I can use this capital. I can use it as many times. I mean, we, we talked about velocity of money and the reason why you want to have your money working for you. Well, you can save it in a life insurance policy that's working really well for you and put it to work at the same time with velocity of money as many times as possible. As long as you repay your loans, that frees up the capital of your cash value to use again, you can recycle that money as many times as you like over the lifetime of the policy. So you're getting this infinite ability to use your cash along with this infinite ability to create a legacy that lasts for multiple generations. So that is just a little bit about what's behind cash value and how it works and how it benefits you. So I hope that this was helpful to you in understanding infinite banking and making decisions for your life. If you are seeing in yourself right now, the value of having a death benefit to pay out to your family and the value of having a place to store cash that has guarantees and that has a growth rate attached to it that you can continue to use without interrupting your growth, that piece itself is profound. But that ability to continue using your capital while it grows at the same time, if you're seeing the use and the need for this in your life, we encourage you to reach out to us and ask questions about how it can work for you in your own life situation. And, you know, Bruce, I think the number one answer to this top question we get, will infinite banking work for me? The number one answer is, well, it depends on your money habits. If you are a person who already is applying those fundamentals of saving, you see the value of saving, you're storing cash, you want to have access to that cash, but you also want to be doing as much as possible with that cash, not just investing it and hoping that you don't lose money, but you want to be in a position of having a store of cash that is that treasure trunk it's the reserves, the, the war chest that you can always lean back on and access in a time of need for liquidity and also have that money working as hard as possible for you. This is a good potential next step. I'm not going to say it's always a fit, but it's a very good potential next step. If you're the person who's saying, how can I fund something as quickly as possible so I can borrow as much as possible tomorrow and I don't care what happens in the future and I don't have good money habits, this is not a a magic trick that will work to solve that concern. I had another another Nelson Nash um, Institute practitioner once said to me, or just recently said to me, uh, he doesn't want people that want to start fast and finish slow. He wants people that want to start slow and finish fast. 
Ah, that's excellent. And I think that's what that's what uh, uh, don't be afraid to capitalize, as as um, Nelson used to say, and think long term. Is it's all about behavioral habits, and that's why we say to other people on this show is we'd love to talk to people that have good habits because we can enhance those habits. If you don't have good habits, then you probably need to work on those habits before you get into um, this kind of strategy because it's just not going to work for you. Mm-hmm. That's That's been, I mean, I've been on over a thousand of these strategies with different people and very few of them fail, but the ones that fail are the ones that, you know, have really bad habits to begin with. Very well said. So we're talking about infinite banking fundamentals, but there's a fundamental beneath infinite banking and that is sound money habits. And so if you are listening and you say, yes, I have really good money habits, then you probably do. If you're saying, what's a money habit? Um, you probably need to work on it a little bit more. So this has to do with that consistent discipline of saving, living on less than you earn, storing capital somewhere that it can do something for you and having that as a lifelong habit, not just a means to get to an end of a certain dollar amount in emergency savings and then you're good. This is a lifelong discipline of good money habits of saving. Bruce, I think that's a wrap for today. If you have questions or thoughts, we would love to hear them. Please go ahead and drop your comments into YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever you are listening to this show. We're also live on the podcast channels. So that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all of the places that you can find podcasts as well. And we'd love to hear from you directly. You can email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. But even more importantly, please go ahead and share what you think about this show. If you have a question or you would just like to allow more people like yourselves be able to find the work that we do, we would love if you would subscribe, if you would go ahead and share this episode, share it with your friends, um, share it on any social media that you are able to. And if you are on the podcast channels, go ahead and drop a review as well. That is really helpful to us. And it's super helpful as well to anyone else who is looking for good, solid, factual information to help them make decisions about living the financial future that maximizes and optimizes their opportunities. So thanks for being with us today. In closing, remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk, 
and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated, and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.